So welcome again to another Investor Investor podcast. Today we have Ramona Liberoff, who I've actually now checked and I've known for about six years now. So we met because you joined the advisory board of Arachnus. So give me a bit about your background and what led you to us meeting in 2012. A lot of things happened. So I've had many, many different career lives. The theme on my CV is apparent only to me and never to headhunters. But effectively, I've spent the last 25 years or so always the leading edge of whatever is about to happen in technology, business, and society. So probably the most relevant piece of this is I did an educational background that had nothing to do with business or with technology. However, when I was doing an abortive PhD at Yale in the early 90s, I met someone in the computer science department who showed me the Mosaic browser, if you remember it. Yeah, I do. And that famous Cambridge coffee pot and a few very early applications. And I thought, this stuff, this is what's going to change the world. And this is somehow what I want to work on. And that led to actually working in advertising and new media, as it was called at the time, doing some of the first websites for the BBC, for HSBC, for others, to working in consulting on actually thinking about business models, competition, and sort of changes in market structures in media and telecoms, and then eventually to working in startups 10 years apart. At some point, I took a detour and actually went and did another master's in organizational and social psychology. That was here at LSE. It was here at the LSE, exactly. Because I realized that so much of what goes wrong with startups and management teams and goes bad can be attributed to the dynamic with the people involved. And I wanted to understand it better to be able to influence it. And that's actually helped a great deal when it comes to working with startups to understand what's happening. And then over time, I spent almost 10 years working in innovation insights with clients like PepsiCo, Vodafone, HSBC for WPP, then for Nielsen, working on Unilever's global innovation increasingly in emerging markets. A couple of years running an accelerator as chief exec of actually a publicly funded accelerator, scaling businesses in East Africa and South Asia. And now at Energy as Chief Operations Officer of the Corporate Venture Capital and Innovation Group. In Berlin. In Berlin, but actually with offices in Palo Alto, Tel Aviv, London and Warsaw. A really interesting mix then. So let's just unpick that slightly. (laughs) So you came over to the UK. Did you work in the States before you came over here? Sort of. I mean, I had grown up partly in the UK as well. I very nearly went to to a girls' public school, in which case my accent would be very different, I suspect. And I'd be much better at horses. It's very mid-Atlantic anyway, isn't it? (laughs) It's rather. But I have been dual national um, most of my life. So I consider the UK to be as close to a home as I have ever had. Hmm. The good thing about not really having a nation is that you feel comfortable nearly everywhere, (laughs) especially where there are people from everywhere doing all sorts of interesting things, which both London and Berlin have in common. So you started corporate life in the States, then moved over here, did you? Yes, very briefly. I mean, as I say, more than two decades spent based from London doing global jobs with global clients. Okay. So let's talk about your first startup journey. What triggered that and what it was and what happened? Well, I worked briefly for British Telecom in the mid-90s when they were going through this first wave of transition on actually thinking about content and trying to avoid the trap of being a dumb pipe. I'm sure everyone remembers those times. So the first startup was actually a spin-out from the British Telecom Labs. There were a number of technologies that were looking for a market at the time. And this happened to be an early version of intranet software for small and medium-sized enterprises. In principle, a need they all had, but actually in practice, an incredibly difficult thing to do for a number of reasons. First of all, small and medium-sized enterprises did not realize they needed an internet solution or even what that was. Secondly, they had no technology budget or technology department. And thirdly, the sheer effort of having to go and educate a market that didn't know that it needed what you were selling at the price (laughs) you were selling it at pretty much meant that even though we raised a first round of capital, we really struggled to get any paying clients and fell into a kind of valley of doom rather quickly. 
BT's marketing ability, potentially. It was not actually done in conjunction with BT. The founder left British Telecom with the permission to use the technology, but very little support from the organization to actually commercialize it. And what funding did you raise? We raised some angel funding. I seem to remember it was a a low number of hundreds of thousands from a few connected angels. The other interesting lesson that I had in this whole thing was the team had been brought together through an executive MBA program at LBS, of which I was not a part. I was brought in as strategy and marketing director kind of afterwards when they realized there was a gap on the team. But something that is a student project that makes a lot of sense on paper, even to potential investors, if it's not market tested, probably the biggest lesson I took from this was twofold. One, if it's not market tested, don't go anywhere near it. And secondly, don't take everything on faith. A number of the people involved in this were disingenuous. They kept other consulting arrangements, but several of us actually put money in and didn't take a salary. So when that came out, that obviously was one of the sort of death knells to the team being willing to put the time and effort in that it would have taken. And the final, the point of death was when more investment wasn't available. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. During the due diligence, actually, for the second round of investment, all these things came up about questionable commitment on some of the key members' sort of foundations. But interestingly enough, a couple of them actually went to go on to work in venture capital. So for them, it wasn't too much of a hardship. But it was a lesson that stuck with me, which is don't take everything on faith. And certainly don't assume there is a market unless you have proof there is one. Right. Well, of course, that's difficult because I invested technology that is a long way from market. Yes, but even then, it's not impossible to chart a path to when it will be available. And then also know that you'll have to remain extremely thrifty until the market emerges. There's nothing wrong with being early as long as you haven't spent every penny in the bank before the market is there. Exactly, yes. So how long was that journey? That was roughly a year, year and a half. Quite short then. Quite short. So a single round. But you know what these things are like. A year and a half in startup terms is, you know, kind of like a dog life. I aged significantly during that time. (laughs) So after that, did you go back into corporate life? I did, exactly. I started to realize something that's come back to me a few times, which is working for one startup is interesting, but working to help a range of them is fascinating and probably better suited to my magpie skills and short attention span than anything else. So I actually went to work for a short while for a conglomerate that was putting together a portfolio of new media interests and then sort of went on from there into this large global client work for innovation and insight uh, with a hypothesis that actually big companies had a lot to offer in the innovation space but hadn't necessarily taken advantage of their assets. For a long time, the cost um, and barriers to starting a startup, everything from cultural barriers against being an entrepreneur, all the way through to barriers to information, the high cost of technology, really made it quite a tough thing to do. And I had had a hypothesis in kind of the early 2000s that companies like HSBC or Vodafone would be very well placed to really take advantage of new technologies and new business models. But what I discovered during that journey was actually that success can be one of the biggest hindrances to innovation. Because if someone's been very successful, an organization has built its success upon doing things a certain way, the pain and risk of change is too great to take. So that was actually a real aha for me and a reminder that startups will always have a role to play. And I think today, ever more so. I mean, I I would actually say the power has now swung decisively in the direction of the challenger rather than the incumbent. Yes, but they still take time and effort they and money indeed. exactly to they its challenge. And if you take the challenge of banks, they're still mm. minute compared with the global banks. Yes. So let's go back again to startups. So what happened with MOV? Was it MOV? Mover or two? Two. Yeah. Yes, indeed. So in 2010, I had just come to the end of working for a few very intense years for WPP. And I wanted to try something completely different. And I happened to meet the founder of Movertu, a brilliant technical genius who had been the head of uh, one of the Indian company's labs. 
And he had a technical solution which enabled people in developing markets to share phones privately. It was a bit like Gmail for phones. You could log in and out without leaving a trace. The reason why that was important and material is that many people could not afford a phone, but really wanted to use a mobile for banking, for communication, for small business. And that this was particularly important to a historically excluded set of people, agricultural workers, small traders, and women, effectively. In developing Africa? In developing, not just okay. Africa, but also Asia. Okay. So it, the prospective market was probably about 2 billion people at the time, not a small market, but definitely not where all the apps were being developed for the Silicon Valley dwellers. So you have a single phone with a single SIM card mm -hmm. and you can log in, but it won't exactly. change the phone number, will it? It'll just it change won't change the... anything. Okay. It won't use any of the credit on the phone, which is an important element of this. It won't disclose any of the data on the phone or your data to the user of the phone. So it's private, it's confidential, and it also allows you to do things like mobile banking. It's a virtual SIM. Yes. was really the technology. Well, it and the sounds company, like it's a, a large need there. It was. The company had a number of patents. Now, this also went not in the direction that we were hoping for, but in a completely different way. Fast forwarding, three years later, the company was actually sold to BlackBerry by the investors after having defenestrated all of the existing team <laughs> in a rather sort of cynical exploitation of uh, the intellectual property assets. And that lesson I learned was twofold, was first of all, not every investor has the management team's interest at heart. And secondly, if you're trying to work in an emerging market, there's absolutely no point trying to do it from several thousand miles away. We had a tech team in South Africa and one in Mumbai. We didn't have really anyone on the ground. So I would spend months at a time during this sort of year and a bit in Tanzania, in Madagascar, on the phone to Pakistan, because I couldn't actually go there safely to, to implement. There was really no substitute for being there. We should have had our commercial team closer to the markets. And what was your role there? Head of strategy, marketing and insight. And were you a founder as well? Or were you, no, you I was not a founder. Late, I was a but... very early hire, hire number four. I think my other lesson was never, ever go work for a married couple. Uh, yes, <laughs> I think we've heard that before. It's something I wouldn't readily do again. Right. But I think it put a great strain on them as well as on everyone who needed to work with them. Okay. Do you know who the funding came from? That was another big lesson, in fact. We had three completely different investors in our early round. We'd raised a couple of million and they each had a similar share. None of them wanted the same things. So you'd actually spend 10 days preparing a board pack for three completely different sets of investors, a complete waste of time and a real drag on a small business that had enough complexity. What was the difference? Was one a VC, a family office, an individual angel, or one was a corporate or something? Uh, the difference was more an in investment hypothesis. So two were, to a greater or lesser degree, impact investors who really were interested in the social impact that we were making, the inclusion effects of mobile, underserved populations. However, they had different metrics to measure that social impact. So the measurement framework we had to use was unbelievably complex. That was one issue. The other was, were mainstream VCs. You'd had a good track record in effectively basically selling on IP, which is indeed exactly what happened in this case. So the investors at some point got together, did a deal amongst themselves, and that's what enabled the team to be dismissed and the profit to accrue to the investors rather than any of the, um, of the people and the founders at all. Okay, yeah, there's a lot of lesson in there somewhere. Indeed there, there yeah. is. How many rounds do they have? Just the one or? One and a half. Okay. There was a bit of a bridge round raised. Right. I think the other thing was there was an immense pressure on user numbers and growth. And from a technical point of view, the solution was infinitely scalable. From a market point of view, it absolutely was not. Right, because so, of the cost of acquisition of a customer or? Not only that, it was that we had to work with the telcos. So our software had to be installed in the telcos hub, which was a difficult process in and of itself. 
But the other thing was there was exceptionally little revenue to be earned on any one user, mm. and no operator wanted to be first. So we spent our time shuttling between five or six operators who were running very limited trials in very difficult markets, right. <laughs> trying to convince one of them to put a bit of marketing and other sort of sales push behind it. Eventually, Tigo, who I actually give a lot of credit to for being super innovative, were willing to do so. They're they're kind of leading emerging market mobile player, not very well known. In developed markets, but extremely successful in Latin America, in Africa. So they were a great route to market for you. Great route to market, but the interesting thing there is, the users found it exceptionally difficult to understand because they didn't even know what a SIM was. A virtual SIM proved even more difficult to explain. So we ended up calling it actually Magic SIM, and that worked better. Magic SIM, indeed. Yeah, well done. Yes. Okay. In Swahili. <laughs> And what's happened, what have BlackBerry done with it? Have you any idea? I haven't any idea. I suspect the patents simply are in a portfolio somewhere and being used for some elements of identity management. Ironically, identity management is such a hot issue in all of the new blockchain models that I feel sometimes like I've gone back 10 years and thinking about some of the early patents. So the the founder really was a technical visionary. Yes. But the circumstances that he found himself in and that all of us were in as a leadership team were insurmountably difficult. And the final question on this, were you aware if the founder made any money on the exit? I believe a bit, but I'm not privy to the details. No, of course you won't be, no. Okay. So this is now seven years ago, and you've done a lot since then. Yes, I have. And one of the things I must just mention is that we met because you knew David Buxton from the founder of Arachnus, who we have... In 2010, actually, I invested the first time. Oh, did you? Okay, in the first round. Mm -hmm. Okay, because my first contact with you by email was in 2012 when you joined our advisory board and you've been on that journey and helped tremendously, not just as a shareholder, also as an advisor. Well, I have to say the second run at a startup was the time when I realized definitively it was a lot more fun to be an investor than it was to be an entrepreneur. (laughs) And that's pretty much what I've stuck to ever since. Never say never. I might go back and try something again one day. But my two experiences led me to think that actually maybe I was better served investing and advising. Because you also invest in Repositive. Shall we talk about that? I mean, you're angel investing. Just talk through that, how you found the investments, how they're getting on, how many failures you've had, perhaps. Sure. At a sort of high level, I'm always happy to open source what I have done because I think it helps other people think about what they could do. Um, Over the last 10 years or so, I've taken about a third of my net assets and put them into startups. On paper, and this is a very important <laughs> qualification, which doubtless you'll know, I'm up about 25-30% on the whole. Right. But that obviously includes a whole degree of diversity. Several have gone under, yeah. a number are ticking over, and a few are trending nicely, albeit a bit too slowly for my taste, towards some kind of exit or, or liquidity event. Yeah, I mean, Arachnus can be founded from Company's House. The shares you bought originally and the share value now is probably about 10 times. Yeah. Repositive, if you went in early, it's probably about six or seven times Indeed. there as well. So. Yeah. Okay, so failures. Why do you think the companies that you've lost as investor have failed? Mm. It's a bit like that old cliche that uh, every unhappy family is unhappy in its own way. So, But there are some, definitely some themes that I've taken out from looking at the portfolio as a whole. The first I'd say is timing. A number of businesses were too early for the market and didn't manage their cash in line with that. They were overly optimistic. They failed to raise funds. They went under. Yes. A couple were bad luck. One was actually a trade sale where the legals were improperly set up. So even though it was technically an exit, none of the shareholders could realize again. So there was no cash transaction? There was no legally binding cash transaction. And the acquirer went under shortly after they had acquired it. So it was a mess. I mean, that was unforeseen and frankly, yes. hopefully anomalous. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, you know, quasi-exit. I don't quite know how you, how you manage that. Then if I look at also the ones that I feel are failing to achieve their potential, which in a way are more interesting to me than the failures, 
it's all down to management. It's all down to leadership. It's all down to the ability of a founder to recognize his or her limitations mm. and needs and actually be generous enough to incorporate others. The flip side of that is simply a vision that isn't big enough. So you, you need in a founder this paradoxical combination mm. um, that the best founders have of being extremely humble and extremely visionary mm. at the same time. Mm. <laughs> I think David has it at Arachnus. I think Fiona has it at Repositive. I think that's something that they share. Yes. The other thing I've observed about the successes, looking on the bright side for the moment, is they're all exceptionally good at shareholder communication. No one taught them to do it. But for some reason, they understand instinctively the importance of keeping that community informed, engaged, and ready to help. Right. And I think it serves them exceptionally well, not just when things are going well, but also when they might need a bit of help, some introductions. They build trust through that openness and transparency. Good. Yes, exactly. So have you had any successes, any exits yet? I have had probably more up rounds than exits. And I think one of the other things is because of the businesses I invest in, it's not surprising. I have tended, after a little bit of experimenting at the beginning, I don't look at consumer businesses. I look at business to business businesses that are really in a sort of market disruption area that use technology or layers of technology more commonly, and that also have a greater vision or purpose. They really want to make an impact in the world. And as such, the propositions are often more complex. They grow more slowly, but more sustainably, mm. and they make a difference. And I think that making a difference piece for me personally as an investor is extremely important because it keeps me interested in the business as it grows. And that will vary, won't it? Because Arachnus hasn't really got social impact, has it, as we both know? I believe it does. I believe it does. I, I would disagree with that. I think the business was started from a market failure in making information transparent that also prevents the flow of capital to right. emerging markets. Okay. So I don't define it as, is it like what a charity would do. Mm. I look at a greater purpose of improvement. Yes. And that can be environmental, social, financial, fiduciary, business, informational, whatever it is. Mm. So for example, there's a business called Apolitical that um, I've just been looking at. And they are basically a social network for policymakers to share information about what works or what doesn't work as importantly or more so. They don't call themselves a social impact business, but they absolutely will have a positive benefit in the world if they succeed. And would that be true of all your 40 investments? It would be true of the ones I care about yes. and was willing to reinvest it and go the distance with. It's right. something I discovered about myself as an investor, that this was a powerful motivator for me. Right. And when was your first investment? The, the 2010? or was it, was it No, I'd actually that? made a couple of investments before that, small ones. Right. I think I probably spent two or three years tinkering yes. and doing small amounts until I figured out. I call it my sort of unconventional MBA. I probably spent you know, about 40, 50 grand just... Right playing around to figure out what kind of investor I was. And if, if, if we come to tips later on, I think, I think it's really important for everyone to put themselves through that period of education for themselves. Yeah, I've certainly done the same in my criteria, which are probably the main, mm -hmm. took probably six, seven years to settle down. Indeed. Yeah. You need to know yourself before you can actually figure out how you can have the best impact as an investor and as an advisor. Because if you're investing in something early, then you better be prepared yes. <laughs> to be an advisor as well. Good. Let's move on to the next part of your life, which is spring accelerator and energy. It clearly gets you in contact with entrepreneurs and interesting ideas and everything, but with an executive role. Mm -hmm. Does that work for you? It obviously does. But why does that work for you? Again, I kind of, I'm always fascinated by the interfaces of different domains. And to me, the place where large companies and small companies come together can either be a PR story, a disaster, or a great success. <laughs> And I actually believe there's scope to make it much more fruitful 
for both parties to get more out of it. So, and in the case of Spring Accelerator, the large organizations were really development funders who have given an extraordinary amount of money toward entrepreneurship programs that have not really delivered. Spring Accelerator was a kind of lab to say, what if we put a small amount of money, but a very large injection of technical expertise in terms of innovation, business models, and general business skills into high growth businesses and challenge them to serve their user needs better and make a greater impact, what would happen then? And I'm pleased to say that I spent two years, basically turned around the program, restructured it, hired a new team, devolved a lot of control to the countries. By the time I left, three quarters of the companies were actually on track to becoming much better businesses and attracting fresh capital, which is incredibly important. Who were the corporates who put money into that program? The corporates in this case, in inverted commas, were really the development finance institutions. So DFID, USAID, Nike Foundation, and AusAid. Right. And they, as I say, they have spent a lot of money trying to spur on entrepreneurship through training programs and various other things. So this was a deliberate experiment, which I believe is successful, to show that if you give businesses what they need, which is some capital, some technical support, and some greater visibility, they'll thrive. Right. Which is indeed what has happened, assuming you select the right businesses in the first place, which is something we put a lot of effort into redesigning. And actually, my angel investing experience really helped, helped with that, in designing that actually. selection process. And was this an accelerator actually based in the UK or in no, developing it was, countries? It, I mean, it was operating across nine countries in East Africa and South Asia, including some very challenged countries. Countries where there are actually businesses and a startup scene, but in some cases like Ethiopia or Myanmar, a very early, early nascent entrepreneurial ecosystem. Right. Vibrant, but nascent. So this was a big job for you. You were CEO of an organization that had multiple sites throughout multiple continents. Actually, it wasn't such a big job for me, if I'll say. I mean, I'd run teams of 250 and worked across 40 countries before. So in terms of the complexity, this wasn't actually all that complex. Right. The greater complexity was among the stakeholders. And also the use of public funds was something I have never dealt with before. Yeah, the report and will possibly thing. never do again. <laughs> <laughs> but I found it absolutely fascinating. And I really took the trust that was placed in us very, very seriously. Right, okay. And you moved on from that to energy. Development programs tend to have a finite timetable. I came in at year one and a half and left with sort of eight months to run because I was very comfortable that the team could more than handle it. Eight months to run to the next cycle of it's capital done. coming in. No, oh, it's it's done. Public funds only fund for periods of time. That's actually one of the challenges in the development sector is that just when you sort of have figured out what you're doing, the program comes to an end. Unless it can be sustained somehow. They're not generally capital. sustained. Often you find the same teams going and doing similar work on different projects, but each project is effectively self-standig, you know, yeah. each project is effectively yeah. standalone. Yes. It's done for good reasons, but not necessarily with good results. Right. It's done so that there is no guarantee to any commercial organization of an ongoing revenue stream. The UK is unusual in that. In Germany, there's a vertically integrated development funding operation that allows for greater continuity. But in the UK, it's very much short-term, short sprints. So it's capacity building, effectively. Indeed. Yeah, okay. And then hopefully they've grown so they, they can be stable exactly. and continue, right? Exactly. Okay, so did you move from Spring Accelerator to Energy? I or? did, yes. I did. Um, I mean, it was around the time of um, the sort of turbulent time of Brexit and Trump. And my husband and I had started to think about what we wanted our next decade or so to look like. And the truth was, we're both committed Europeanists. We like to think we're not remoners, but we really do care about Europe. And so we bought a flat in Berlin and I started to get to know the scene in Berlin better. And it actually reminded me a bit of the scene in London about 10 years ago. So a very exciting cosmopolitan arena where capital and ideas were just starting to flow in. So the job at Energy came along simply through the network. Someone mm. knew I was looking, that I'd be happy to be based in Berlin and went from there. 
And your role there is not CEO, but COO, is it? It is indeed, yes. The CEO and CFO position are taken by longtime energy insiders. And the head of people in talent and culture and my role are, we are people who are new to the organization. And it it really is a mirror. It's a 60-person organization based, as I say, across the innovation hotspots, Silicon Valley, Israel, Berlin, London, and Warsaw. And our mandate is to invest corporate capital. There's also a small corporate investment venture capital team, is to invest at seed and series A beyond on things that are going to be the future of the energy industry. So not today's energy industry, not grid optimization, not retail automation, but a world where all energy is effectively free and a lot of the trading and supply of it is autonomous by buildings, by cities themselves rather than people. So it's, it's imagining a very, very different energy world because to me, the energy industry, what's fascinating about it, it's one of the last remaining industries to be digitally disrupted, but it's happening very, very quickly. Energy is free. You'll have to explain that. So if we look at renewables, there's a, a, a terrifying chart for anyone who invests in, in uh, renewable energy that shows the price of a kilowatt hour of solar trending to zero very quickly. But there's a capital cost, whatever, isn't there? Exactly. Disposal That's the problem. cost. That is the problem that the large energy companies have because their cost of supply and provision is not decreasing, but the cost of the point of use is nearly zero. And the only markets that are possibly left open to them, and energy businesses have traditionally been national or regional rather than global in their outlook, are markets where that's already effectively the case. Mm. So it costs a lot to make no money. It shouldn't be no money because there's still Very a cost. Money. Really? Very little money, yeah. Because of the competition, though? Because it's no, commoditized? No, it's partly competition. It's partly commoditization. It's partly technology. Because with the big push in Germany and Japan have led the push, particularly in solar energy. So with a combination of high-volume buying, Chinese manufacturing improvements and so on, the technology has become cheaper and cheaper. Mm. But then also the efficiency has become better and better. Mm. So with hydro and with wind, it's slightly different. But the truth of the matter on renewables, broadly speaking, is it costs much more to deliver then you can possibly hope to earn back, which is why you see the energy industry consolidating at such a rapid rate. Again, I'm reminded of the media revolution in the late 90s and early 2000s. You suddenly see a window opening for completely different digital-first disruptors coming in and seizing aspects of this market without any of the legacy, either regulatory pressure or competitive pressure or employee base. The core energy business is obviously looking for ways to digitally improve or automate its existing business. So things like grid management and maintenance um, that doesn't require as many people because also talents are short. Things like installation of smart meters, they're doing all of that already. Right. This is assuming a world where everything has a smart meter already, where all energy is renewable and possibly free. What then? So these are models looking at things like peer-to-peer energy trading, and we are investing in businesses that have these ideas and business models. Right. Excellent. Okay. And so the money's coming from the bigger RWE, et cetera, or whoever, the, the bigger energy uh, It's companies. coming from energy itself, okay. but obviously there's a desire and there's some frameworks in place to attract other sources of capital. Right. And how many startups have you got around the world at the moment? We have about 55 in the portfolio at the minute, and we're adding on average about one a week. So we see a lot of deals. <laughs> so you're putting it, it's an accelerator, so you're buying some shares early stage, mm-hmm. adding some smartness to it, the acceleration program, and helping them raise finance later on. Not all would raise finance, will they, I'm sure? Many of them will, but actually the interesting thing there is non-traditional sources of finance. So there's an example of a company called WePower, who raised 40 million euros in an ICO to build infrastructure, to build renewable infrastructure in Lithuania, Estonia and Central and Eastern Europe, because they found that the public finance markets were broken 
for the reasons I've explained to you. It's mm. a, it becoming a really unattractive investment case mm. to build renewable energy infrastructure, but it still has to be done. Mm. So yeah. they actually just went straight to an ICO. But so they, they sold crypto, they sold a coin of some form. They created a goes. token. Yeah, some yeah. euros, yeah, yeah. yeah. Yes, I still haven't got my head around how cryptocurrency comes in. Euros are needed to build infrastructure on the ground. <laughs> you can't yet spend bitcoins to knock forests down. I was actually on a, on a blockchain investment panel last week, so my learning curve has been extremely steep. But what I've come to realize is that a lot of these new financing models never look at real currency. What they do is they aggregate all of the resources that are needed, people's time, people's energy, a community, and because they're digital first, a lot of the work required is development of an open source protocol of one kind or another. Mm. And then they basically call upon that and reward that in something that will eventually convert potentially to fiat currency or become a valuable currency in its own right. Well, it needs to convert to fiat currency for the staff to pay their rent, though, um, isn't it? I mean, it doesn't always. So well, the interesting thing is a lot of the people who made it big in the first crypto wave are actually multimillionaires themselves. So you find them being the investors in these kinds of models, in these second order models. It's all happened very quickly. So let's talk about women and angel investing and entrepreneurs. We both know Sarah Turner well. We both invested in Fiona, a Danish lady from Repositive. Yep. What are your views? First of all, I think that there is a real struggle right now on both sides of the market, if you like, both for entrepreneurs and for investors. And I think both have to be solved if we're going to make the most of the entrepreneurial and growth capacity in the market. It's actually a market failure. If we think about the stats in the UK alone, women control nearly half of the wealth, but actually do a tiny, tiny portion of those funds find their way into any kind of early stage investing. The main reason for that is that angel investing is still very much a social activity, a community activity, and people tend to invest with people they know in things they know. But there's often not a forum for women to meet with other investors. So things like the Cambridge Angels are a perfect example. It's a fantastic group that now has a few women in it and much credit to opening it up and trying to sort of find other capital. But we need many, many more of these small networks before we can really start tapping mixed networks, capacity. Primarily. I believe it's important to have mixed networks. Yeah. I mean, humanity is roughly 50-50. Mm. So the idea that you still have many, many networks that are 99% male does seem a bit odd. Mm. Mm. Absolutely, the no, least. exactly. The other side of it is that there's actually far more female entrepreneurs, but they tend to be treated as if their businesses are somehow smaller lifestyle businesses. I know a number of very, very talented technical entrepreneurs who failed to raise any venture capital because the moment they turned up, they were asked questions about their children, their husband, and whether they'd like to have dinner that evening. I hope it's not that bad. I'm afraid it is. Okay. I'm afraid it is. I have enough direct examples that I think it's far more common than we imagine. So they have simply gone and found alternative financing methods and are doing quite well, mm. but they're not featured in the stories or the public which reinforces the opinion that somehow women run lifestyle businesses or girl ghetto businesses. Mm. I really resent when someone approaches me and asks me if I want to invest in a business around lipstick and shoes because it shows they clearly haven't done their research about my interests. Exactly. Are your interests in the public domain though? Have you got on a website or how could somebody tell what it's you're It's fairly in? obvious. I have spoken on the record a number of times yeah. <laughs> about my interests and, and my, it's just, it's just laziness. Yeah. It's often people assuming that because I happen to be a woman, I will only be interested in things that women buy. That must be really depressing when somebody comes up and does that. You must be pretty angry as well. I just say to them, they should do their research. Okay. So we're not going to do this with quotas, are we? How are we going to do it? With education or networking or... I think a lot of it starts simply with assumption making and stereotypes. And it's not an easy thing to overcome a stereotype apart from 
all the women like me who are seen right now as an exception should work to make ourselves seem very normal. Mm. <laughs> Because I don't believe we are exceptional. Mm. You know, with close to 40% of senior professionals being women, there should be no reason why more women aren't putting more of their money in this asset class, which is quite exciting and rewarding and no more volatile than many others. So rather than putting money into property, I just want to encourage every woman that I meet to try it and start going on the journey and which, find other people to invest with. Which is the education. This is a report came out in the last two weeks on that, that Jenny Tooth was involved with. Have you seen the report? Yeah, and a lot of it's to do with risk appetite. I don't actually agree with it. I'll be perfectly honest, because I think that is, again, something that it, women are told that they don't have the same risk appetite as men. It doesn't square up with my experience or my own character. I think if women are in a group, just as if men are in a group, they will feel less a sense of risk because they will not be investing individually. They'll feel reassured by the competence, the experience, and the different angles of approach, of diligence of their peers. Mm. So I think a lot of that risk appetite business would be taken away if there were more groups within which women could invest. And in fact, at Angel Academy, we've pioneered something called Investor Academy, which is about getting a group of people who want to invest in female founders together and running them through a proxy exercise of what it's like to actually make that investment. And when they come out of that half a day, they're far more likely to go and make an investment because they've effectively lived the experience of it. It takes away their sense of anxiety and incompetence and makes them think, actually, I could do this. Yeah, and there's Rising Tides, which is a global movement, a movement that I've been to in, in New York. And generally it works if it's not just purely women, doesn't it? It works yeah, where there's a mixture. Absolutely. Not 50-50 probably, but 70-30 or 80-20. But. There's a great piece of research done in the 1970s by Rosabeth Moss Cantor, who's an academic at Harvard Business School. She wrote a book, which is actually her master's thesis, called The Men and Women of the Corporation. It was very simple. Any minority, until it gets to 30%, is seen as anomalous, extraneous, and somehow the exception. But at 30%, it begins to normalize, which is the logic behind things like the 30% club, the Frauenquote in Germany, and so on. Right, okay. I think in the short term, one may need forcing factors to simply prove that there's nothing exceptional yes. and nothing unusual about being someone in 50% of the population doing this work. And of course, if it's 30% and the numbers apparently are 15% of women angels in the UK, which neither of us really believe do Neither of us really believe. So no. it's a long way if it's less than 15% mm -hmm. from a tipping point at 30, isn't it? It's probably 10%. And the difference between 10% and 30% isn't just a numerical one, it's also a great shift in the population's thinking about it. Too often when people say investor, the immediate impression that comes to mind is rather more like you than me. Unfortunately, I was going to say middle-aged. <laughs> oh, I'm middle-aged too, that's fine. But I'd actually like someone to think a middle-aged woman is an angel investor. Yeah, yeah. With not a bad track record at that. Well, you certainly have, yeah. Okay, let's move on to a few tips for entrepreneurs and investors. What would you like to share here? There was actually something very interesting I saw by Bill Gross, which is a, a wonderful TED Talk I recommend, because he tried to deconstruct the elements of a successful, the sets of successful investments he's made in his own idea lab portfolio. As the name would suggest, he believed at the time that the idea was really the thing and closely tied to that, the entrepreneur or the founder. Quite to his surprise, he found almost the opposite. He found that a combination of the team and the timing were really the thing that made a success or not. And all I would give people as a top tip from that is to really think about the future-proof nature of the business and think about the longevity and relationship of the team. In addition to being great communicators and being this combination of visionary and humble founders, I also find that a lot of the best startup teams go the distance together. They have a very strong trust-based relationship. They are not necessarily the same as each other, 
Mm. but they're able to stay as a roughly stable team and add what capacity they need on an equal footing. So how that the long do you think they grow. need to have known each other beforehand? Because if you take entrepreneur first, mm-hmm. the teams that come out of that accelerator have only known each other for 13, it's a good 16 question. weeks. They don't need to know each other for long. What they need to uncover quite quickly is whether they share the same values. Because to me, one of the biggest things that splits up a founding team is when there is a difference in integrity or a difference in values between the members of that team. That's an absolute disaster. And I have a couple of companies, regrettably, that I have invested in where the founder's integrity is one of the main limiting factors integrity or lack of integrity. Values. Yeah, that's not a great thing to be. I, I have three founders I've had to negotiate out of businesses and it's not been integrity, it's been the values. Indeed. It's been direction they want to I think to it was closely connected. I mean, one of, one of my risk hedges by investing in businesses with a bigger purpose is that there tends to be a correlation between that intent and some deeply held values. Right. And integrity. Yes. So in a way, someone might say, oh, that's nice. You're doing something good for the world. No, I'm doing something good for my portfolio because there is actually a clear correlation between high integrity and deeply held values. If a founder is merely trying to enrich him or herself, it won't come to it. Yes. I think we can usually detect that, can't we? When you start doing due diligence, I hope so. Indeed. Actually, another top tip I would have is try not to meet the founding team until you've learned something about the business. Because for debiasing purposes, many founders are exceptionally charismatic individuals and human beings are fallible. We are emotional. We do respond socially rather than intellectually. So unless we equip ourselves with a point of view, which obviously we can then challenge when we meet the founder, but unless we have a point of view, that was one of the things we did in spring. We took away the personal pitch until the very end of the process. Whereas before it had started with it and our predictions of success actually went way up. Yeah, we've had we that from another better. interviewee where he mm-hmm. said that if you, once you've seen the picture, you fall in love with them, walk away straight away. <laughs> <laughs> you know, if you've, if you've got too emotionally connected because they've done such a great job of pitching at you. In a perfect case, the charisma goes alongside with the integrity, but not always. And of course, as we know, the ones who actually come across well are the ones who are great at selling equity. Mm-hmm. We don't want them just to be able to sell equity. We want them to be able to execute and build a business. Yes, exactly that. And I think I'd make one other top tip, which is simply think about what you can bring to the investment that you make beyond capital. Think very carefully about the amount of energy or time that you have, about how willing you are to open your networks. Because I think as much as the entrepreneurs can sell themselves to investors, I think also a lot of investors oversell themselves to entrepreneurs. Yes, that's right, that they haven't necessarily got the time. I have a list of questions that I put on a slide for entrepreneurs to ask angel investors before they take the money, just to see if there's some proof that the smartness will be there. Indeed. I also, by the way, always tell entrepreneurs to remember that investors are not doing this out of the goodness of their heart or because they have plenty of spare cash. They do expect a credible plan to receive their money again someday, hopefully enhanced. Yes, I think that's true, isn't it? I mean, unless it's a social investment. No, even if it is a social investment, Peter, and actually there's recent research that shows the returns from so-called social investments are no poorer. They may take a little bit longer because the propositions or markets are more complex, but they should never be lower. A social investment is not a handicapped investment. It is an advantaged investment. And if I, if I didn't already have my, my gender crusade on, I would get on the, um, I'd get on the crusade of that a social investment is not a charity or a philanthropy right. thing. It shouldn't be. Otherwise, it shouldn't be called an investment. Exactly. It should be a charity then, shouldn't it? Yeah, where you're actually buying some outcome. Indeed. Good. This has been really interesting. I'm going to ask you another question, which if you've listened to any of those podcasts, you'll know what I'm going to say, which is you are well more than a decade younger than me. When you get to my age, which I'm happy to say is 62, what do you think you'll be doing? 
I do love that question. The crystal ball never works on oneself, of course, but I'll give you a hypothesis. I may be just crazy enough to have one more startup in me, and in this case, it would be something I'd want to start myself. And it would probably be a startup that actually looks at supporting entrepreneurs, so some kind of clean tech incubator or accelerator, potentially looking at developing markets. Could be doing that, or could be enabling someone else to do that. That's one thing. And I very much hope that in a decade or so from now, I'll still be living in Berlin legally <laughs> right. and uh, be able to enjoy the city and watch how it's grown. It's a great place, isn't it, Berlin? Excellent. Well, thank you very much, Romana. It's you. been a really great journey through your life and we've learned a lot. Thank you very much. Thank you, Peter. Thanks for listening to another Invested Investor podcast. You can subscribe to all future podcasts via our website, investedinvestor.com, or via a number of podcast platforms online. Signed pre-orders for our Invested Investor book are now available on our website. And be sure to follow us on Twitter, LinkedIn and Facebook to get the most up-to-date, interesting and insightful content from The Invested Investor. <laughs>